Christ is for everyone. A podcast about celebrating the goodness of life in the love of Christ. The Nicene Creed. What do Christians believe? Lesson 5. The Mediation of Christ. We are now in the fifth week of our Bible study on the Nicene Creed. We've addressed a lot of different topics in order. We've asked the question, why do we have the Creed in the first place? And the answer to that question is uh, because the principle of the unity of the Church is Christ, and the Creed reminds us in a very summary form, in a very succinct form, of the essential apostolic teachings about Christ, who he is and what he came to teach us and to do for us. We also ask the question in the second week, does God exist? Because the first thing that the Creed says is, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And I argue that yes, God does exist. Um, There has to be a source of the existence of everything. There has to be something that is the cause of everything else, that is not caused itself by anything else, that doesn't uh, get its existence from anywhere else, but can give existence as a gift. Just like, for example, when you go camping and you cook beans on a pot, you know, the, be- the pot makes the beans to be hot, uh, but the pot doesn't have heat of its own. It doesn't have heat on itself. It gets heated by the fire, but nothing makes the fire hot. The fire just is hot by nature. So just like the fire is hot by nature and it can transfer heat to the pot and to the beans, so also God is that which exists by nature. Nothing makes him exist. He doesn't get his existence from anywhere. He doesn't depend on anything. He simply has existence of its own, of his own, and he can give existence to everything else. And then in the third week, we talked about the problem of evil, right? We say that God exists. We say that he's all-powerful, that he's all-knowing, that he's perfectly good. If that's true, and if God is the source of everything, then why is there evil in the world? If God truly were the source of everything, wouldn't he have prevented evil from taking place? The answer that I gave to that question was double. There was a philosophical answer and a theological or a Christian answer. The philosophical answer is we cannot know why evil exists. This is dissatisfying, but it's true. There are some things that just escape our knowledge. From the fact that we cannot understand what is the good of some bad thing that happens, it doesn't mean that there is no good. Our vision is limited. I can only see this much. And the whole history of the universe is massive. So how can I tell, you know, imagine that you were looking at a painting and you looked, you zoomed in extremely closely on, you know, a piece of the painting this big, a piece of the canvas this big. You would see maybe a strange mash of colors. And you you might think to yourself, what is this supposed to contribute to the whole? But you can never see unless you step back and you see the whole. And then... You know, the paint on that tiny little corner of the painting makes sense. Well, we cannot see the whole just yet. We're stuck looking, you know, hyper-zoomed in. We only see time as it goes by, moment by moment. So there's a lot of details that we miss. God sees the bigger picture, and he assures us that we should trust in him. But we do not see the bigger picture. And yet the theological, the Christian answer, is that God, far from being indifferent about the evil in the world, actually wants to destroy it. He wants to redeem this world and to bring it back into a state of, of goodness, into a state of glory, into a state in which he is fully present everywhere. But that is for the future. 
That is not happening now, obviously. And yet at the same time, we have a foretaste of that. When Christ is resurrected from the dead, we see God's saving power at work. Christ died. Now, you know, we can also repair things ourselves. For example, if your car breaks down within limits, you can repair it. Um, or if, for example, you tear a fabric on your shirt, you know, a good uh, tailor or a good, um, what do they call those uh, people who work on the... A seamstress, yeah. The, the word in Romanian was coming to me, but not in English. A good seamstress within limits can repair, you know, tears and, and damage that you do to your clothes. But some things are beyond repair for us. Here's a thing that for us is beyond repair, death. If you're sick, the doctors can do what they can to heal you. But if, they, if you die, can they do anything to you? No. All right? In death, we reach our limits. But God shows his power. He can even solve death. Even death is not something too much for him. A person dies, and yet God can bring them back. So in the resurrection of Christ, we see that God's saving power, his power to restore things, has no limits. Even the death of Christ is not an impenetrable barrier for God. He can, he can raise Christ from the dead. And that will happen with all of us also, and that will happen with this entire creation. That's his promise for us. Now last week, we spoke about the two natures of Christ. All right, this is one of the important points in the creed. This is exactly the, the controversy that motivated the composition of the creed in the first place. Christ is God and man. The way the Bible speaks about Christ, it says things of him which suggest that he is divine, that he comes from the creator side of the creator-creature distinction. It also says things of him which suggest that he's like us, a creature. He, has, he belongs on the creaturely side. Now, the idea is that in Christ there are two natures. There's the divine nature, in virtue of which he is equal to God, and his human nature, in virtue of which he is equal to us. Okay? Christ was not always human, but he was always God. This is why the creed begins with the statements, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. It starts with the description of Christ's divinity. And then it says what? Who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. So Christ was always God, but he was only later man. He was not always man. He was always God. He was always in the fellowship of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But at a certain point in the divine economy, as the theologians say, at a certain point in God's plan for the world, then in addition to being God, he became man. Without changing with respect to his divinity, he becomes man. He, he has something added on top of that. So today what we are going to talk about is precisely this clause, who for us men and for our salvation. That is my point of emphasis uh, in this lesson. Now, I'm learning as I prepare my lessons for these, um, you know, f on each section of the creed, I'm learning that there are far more things that I could say than, than, I, than I can say. I could say a lot more than I can, right? I mean, I only have so much time available, and there are so many things that if I were to give a complete treatment, I would have to, re I would have to me uh, mention. For example, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary. Here's one thing that I will not have time to talk about today. I will not be able to talk about the virgin birth. All right, there is an entire um, significance to the fact that Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. He does not have a human father. 
If you look in scripture, Christ never refers to any human being as his father. Other people do. Other people say, isn't this the son of Joseph whom we know and his brothers and sisters? But he never speaks about any human being as his father. His only father is God. He does speak about Mary as his mother, but he only recognizes God as his father. So this is critically important in Christ's self-understanding. He knows that he was not born of Joseph. Or in the olden days, there was a, you know, a slander. There was all kinds of slander against Christians in the, old, in the olden days, right? The Romans, the Greeks, the, you know, the pagans in the, in the first few centuries of Christian history, they made up all kinds of stories because they didn't want to believe in Christianity. So they, they made up all kinds of stories about how Mary got pregnant by some question, right? We're talking about hypothetical scenarios that don't exist because as it turns out, human beings did sin. There's an interesting discussion to be had there. Um, some theologians say that no, if human beings had never sinned, that Christ would never have come into the world and human beings would have just maintained fellowship with God at a distance, so to speak. Other theologians say, yes, even if human beings had never sinned, Christ still would have come into the world, not to make atonement for our sins, but so that it can be close to us, so that he can be among us and close to us in a way that uh, he would not be if he were never incarnate. So there's a disagreement among the theologians on that issue. It's a speculative question. Some people find it interesting. I'm not going to talk about that either, although it would, it would make for interesting conversation. I just want to ask the question, how are we saved by Christ? What exactly does Christ, how does Christ accomplish our salvation? And I think the way to answer this question is by the, the doctrine of the mediation of Christ. Okay, this is the, the lens through which we're going to look at the situation. Christ is the mediator between God and human beings. And this is how our salvation takes place, through this act of mediation. So let's read very briefly from 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to return to this text on a few occasions, but let's just read here for now. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, let's read verses 3 to 6. Paul is telling Timothy to teach all the people in all the churches where he is to pray for people, to pray for kings, to pray for rulers, to pray for other people. And he says to do this because it is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. So we can see Paul's teaching here. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and human beings who is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all. So what I'm going to suggest is that we should understand our salvation as being mediated through Christ. Now what does mediation mean? What does that mean? For something is passed along, right, through a mediator. For example, you cannot read my thoughts, I'm assuming. Can anybody here read my thoughts? No, not even Rachel can read my thoughts, right? Even though we've been married for almost a year, and I know that's a lot of time to be married to a person, right? You cannot read my thoughts. In order for my thoughts to reach you, there has to be a mediation, right? There has, they have to pass through a medium, a middle thing, right, that passes them along. And what is that? That's my speech. I can take my thoughts and I can externalize them through the use of my vocal cords and the education that I received in the English language. And in that way, I can communicate my thoughts to you. So my thoughts are mediated to you through my speech. Or for example, 
you know, Joe Biden. Joe Biden does not hold every single press conference, right? He has a speaker. He has somebody mediating for him. He has, you know, that redheaded uh, woman, I forget what her name is, who goes and speaks to the press on his behalf, right? So she mediates between the press and Joe Biden. And I'm sure Joe Biden has a number of mediators who bring him news from all kinds of different agencies. Well, that's how we should think about salvation. Salvation involves mediation. Christ stands between us and God, the Father. And in some way, this relationship between us and the Father is mediated through Christ. Now, this is why, for example, John says, whoever does not have the Son does not have the Father also. God has chosen to mediate salvation through his Son, Jesus Christ. So that means there's no way around Christ. You know, there's no way to get to God without Christ. If you reject Christ, you reject the Father. If you reject the Son, you reject the Father. You don't have one or the other. Because God has chosen to mediate salvation through Christ. Now, what is the exact nature of this mediation? I am going to emphasize to you that this mediation goes both ways. All right, so there's a two-way mediation. Christ brings human beings the things from, of God. But he also brings to God things that properly come from human beings. Now, this is an interesting thought. Maybe it's a little hard to understand. But this is the significance of the two natures of Christ. Christ is not only God, he is also man. And he is not only man, he is also God. So that means that as God, he brings to us certain things that only God can give. But that also means that as a human being, he brings to God certain things that we are supposed to bring God, but we could not because of sin. So let's try to understand this piece by piece. What does Christ bring us that only God can give us? Well, the first thing is forgiveness of sins. All right. No human being can forgive your sins. This is an interesting thought. Obviously, if you sin against me, I can forgive you for what you've done to me. But can I forgive you for sinning against God? That doesn't make any sense, right? Because I am not God. God has to forgive you. I cannot forgive you for sinning against God. What I can do is perhaps tell you that God has forgiven you, but I cannot personally forgive you for the sins that you committed against God. God has to forgive you. And even if I tell you your sins are forgiven, and yet God does not forgive you, it's all for naught. Right? My word doesn't make it true. God's word has to make it true. So what Christ does, the first thing that Christ does is he brings the forgiveness of sins, which people at that time knew only God could do. This is why, as we read last week, when the people bring the paralytic man to Christ in the house, right, and he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees who are nearby, they hear him and they say, who is this person blaspheming? Who can forgive sins but God alone? This is the most significant sentence in that entire passage. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And yet Christ is saying, your sins are forgiven. So Christ claims for himself an authority, a power that only belongs to God. He claims to be bringing this man, this paralytic man, something that only God can give him, namely the forgiveness of sins. So this is a sense in which, a sense in which Christ brings us something that can only come from God, right? He mediates from God to the human being the forgiveness of sins. Now let's read another passage together from Luke chapter 7. Let's have somebody read Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Thirty-six through fifty. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman 
she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and, and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debt to both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So look at this wonderful passage. Now there's, there are some uh, points of interpretation about how to understand exactly the relationship between love and the forgiveness of sins. On one reading, it might sound like this woman's sins are forgiven because she loves Christ so much. On, one re on another reading, it sounds like this woman loves Christ so much precisely because her sins are forgiven. Uh, and that's what Christ says. Uh, he who has been forgiven little loves little. Right? Our love is a response to, to the forgiveness that we receive. But in any case, the, the idea is clear. What Jesus is mediating here is the forgiveness of sins, which can only come from God. He is here bringing something that only God can supply. And I think anybody who has, you know, ever experienced times where your conscience presses down on you knows what this is like, to feel bad about something and to have no escape and to know that you've done wrong, um, you know, to know that you cannot come to church, you feel unworthy to, to participate in the communion, the songs that we sing in church mean nothing to you, your relation to, to other people seems cold, when you hear other people talking about God, you feel uncomfortable. You almost wonder as if they know that something is wrong with you. That's what it's like to have a burdened conscience, to, be, to feel pressed down by the weight of sin. And Christ comes into the world and he tells you, your sins are forgiven. Now, if some Joe Schmo came along and told me, hey, that horrible thing that you've done, it's all good, don't worry about it, I would not believe him, right? Because he has no authority to tell me that this thing is, <laughs> the thing is not actually as bad as I think. But when God comes into the world in Christ and tells me your sins are forgiven, there is no higher court of, court of appeal than God. There is nowhere else that I can go. No one, no one could possibly stop God from forgiving my sin, right? Because he is the ultimate judge. Okay, so when the ultimate judge comes into the world and tells you your sins are forgiven, there is nothing to feel bad about anymore. There is nothing to weigh down your conscience. All that is left is for you to cling to God with all of your heart and love. And that's exactly what the woman does in this passage here. Now, there's another thing that Jesus brings, which is a thing that only God can do. And this is found in John chapter 9. John chapter 9, verses 28 to 34. What happens here? 
Well, Jesus goes to a certain pool uh, in Jerusalem, and he heals a man. Or no, is it in the... No, it was not uh, the pool of Jerusalem. That's a different instance. Jesus and his disciples are walking along, and he sees a man who was blind from birth. Okay, he did not become blind over time. He was born blind. And his disciples ask him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? And Jesus says, none of them sinned, but he was born like this so that God might show his glory, and he heals him. Now, this is the biggest shock, okay? Everybody knew this person was born blind, but he regains his sight, or he doesn't really regain his sight. He is given his sight for the first time. And so the Pharisees call him over to them, and they investigate the healing, and they ask him, who healed you? And he tells them, of course, that it's Jesus. But they don't want to believe it because Jesus is a Sabbath breaker. All right, They think that Jesus breaks the law. So they cannot believe that he could possibly have healed this person. And this person has an interesting back and forth with Jesus. He argues with them, or with, with, uh, with the Pharisees. He argues with the Pharisees. And notice what he says. Let's read John chapter 9, verses 28 to 34. So look at what the, the, heresies, uh, the, the, heresy, the Pharisees do. Then they hurled insults at him, at the blind man, and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't know where he comes from. We don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they, the Pharisees, replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So notice, when Christ heals, the healings that Christ perform are radical. He, it's not even that he does things like any Old Testament prophet could have done. He has done things that people have never heard of. Granting sight to a person who is born blind. So Christ not only brings the forgiveness of sins, which only God can give us, but he also gives us healing. And he shows that things are, things are within his power to heal that nobody had ever heard of, that even the Pharisees and their own you know, healers could never have done. So Christ brings the forgiveness of sins, which is a sort of a healing of the soul. He also brings the healing of the body. He also brings teachings. This is an, another thing that Christ brings us. If you recall, in Matthew's, uh, in the Gospel according to Matthew chapters 5 through 7, at the end of the, the Sermon on the Mount, okay, God, uh, Christ has been commenting on the Old Testament. He says very many radical statements like, you know, you've heard it said, you know, you shall love your friends and hate your enemies, but I say unto you. And he quotes all these teaching, he quotes all these teachings that they would have been familiar with, but he says, no. You have heard that, here's what I tell you. And then at the end, he says, anybody who builds his, you know, anybody who takes these teachings of mine and builds on them is like somebody who builds his house on a rock, right? If you build a house on sand, it'll fall apart. The monsoon season will come by and your house will fall down. But whoever builds his life on my words and my teachings, he will be like somebody who built his house on a rock. And the hardest storm can come and it still will not fall. And people recognized in Christ's words a sort of a, a pretense to authority that was unheard of. All right, they heard Christ speaking with an authority and with a, uh, with a sense of his own importance that they did not recognize in any of their teachers. Okay, so for example, the rabbis, the Pharisees in their time would have said, 
here is what Moses wrote. This is what Rabbi Eliezer said. This is what Rabbi Gamaliel says. This is what blah, blah, blah says. They're always pointing to somebody else. They're always appealing to this or that person, right? And even in theology, you get that. Um, theologians will say, okay, here is what the gospel writes. Here is what St. Athanasius wrote. Here is what St. John of, you know, St. John Chrysostom wrote. This is what uh, Thomas Aquinas says. Right. People who don't teach with authority always point to somebody else to give their own teachings, you know, uh, an authority. But Christ doesn't do that. He says, I say unto you. And so when Matthew chapter 7, 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Now, think of what is radical about this. Christ is commenting on the law of Moses. Okay, where did the law of Moses come from? from God. All right, now, if I were to write a book, and, you know, Austin, let's say, were to read the book and to tell you about it, could Austin interpret my book authoritatively? Could he, in principle, be wrong about the things that he says? Yeah, right? Where would he have to go in order to figure out if he's read correctly or incorrectly? He would have to come to me, all right? Now, notice what Christ does. He does not point to somebody else to tell them this is what this text means. He only says, I say unto you, all right? He is taking an authority for himself that no reasonable human interpreter could possibly have claimed. Our interpretations are always fallible and limited. We can be wrong, right? Have you ever misunderstood a person in your life at all? Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, I've misunderstood people before. And while I misunderstood that person, I was so convinced that I was right. And then later I find out, whoops, Right? Our feelings of certainty are no guarantee that we have the right interpretation. But Christ does not refer to anybody else. He simply tells them, this is what this means. This is how to understand that. Okay, he takes an authority for himself that only an author could have. He is identifying himself with the God from whom this law came in the first place. All right, so we see that Christ brings a teaching. Now, all kinds of people bring teachings. But he brings a teaching about God that only God himself could bring. This is the authority of Christ in teaching. Right, so this is another thing that, that Christ brings into the world that could only come from God. There is yet another thing, Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. This is closely related to the idea of teaching. Let's listen to what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now suppose somebody were to come to you and were to ask you, do you know God? Maybe you would think to yourself, yeah, I think I know God pretty well. But Christ says that nobody knows the Father except the Son. This is interesting because in Christ's time, there was an entire tradition of rabbis and teachers who they say trace their lineage back to Moses. And one generation creates a new generation of rabbis and this rabbi was ordained by that one and that one was ordained by that one. They had a whole rabbinic succession, right? Purportedly going back to Moses. And they had all these teachings about what God was like and how the people of Israel should be and so on. Christ comes into the world and he says, nobody knows God. Nobody knows the Father except the Son. And those to whom... The Father chooses to reveal him. So in Christ's mind, it's not as if you can simply sit and think about it enough and come to some kind of knowledge of what God is like. 
You cannot know what God is like. Where are you going to go to look at him and to, you know, run experiments and to figure out what he's like? How can you find God unless God comes to you? If you want to know what I'm like, you can find me. I'm here Sunday mornings at 9.30, right? During the week, I'm at my workplace. If you know my phone number from somebody, you can call me. And if I answer, I can talk to you, right? So if you want to know something about me, you can just find me in some way or another. But where are you going to go to find something about God? All that we know is that God created this world. And this world is not all the same. Some parts of it are nice. Some parts of it are not as nice. Some parts of it are very impressive. Some parts of it don't make any sense to us. Right? It's a mystery. The world is a mystery. And this, ref- this is because it reflects God, who is more than we can understand and know. Right? We do not understand the significance of everything that happens in the world because God is bigger than just what we can see. So if we're left to our own devices, we cannot know God. Christ comes into the world and reveals God to us. And he says to Philip at the Last Supper in the Gospel of John, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Right? Philip says to him, Show us the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When Christ comes into the world, he reveals God to us. This is something only God can do, according to Christ's own teaching. According to Christ's own teaching, you cannot know God on your own strength. You know that he exists, you know that he created you, but you don't know what he's like. You don't know what he wants, unless he shows it to you. And Christ comes into the world to show us what God is like. So this is, again, another thing that Christ brings into the world that only God can bring. He brings the things of God to human beings. What are those things of God? The forgiveness of sins, healing, authoritative teaching, knowledge of God, and then finally, in the fifth place, he gives the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, that's Pentecost, all right? The the disciples are meeting in the upper room together with Mary, the mother of Jesus. They're gathered, 120 of them, and then the Holy Spirit descends upon them, and there are miraculous phenomena that take place, for example, like these tongues of fire that appear over their heads. They begin to speak in other languages, And Peter preaches to the people who are on the street who hear this happening. And he says to them, this man, Jesus Christ, who went around doing good and healing and and doing all this stuff, you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. And now he's ascended on high. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And Peter says this, which is very interesting. Having received the Holy Spirit from the Father, he has poured it out, you know, all that you see before you. The giving of the Holy Spirit is through Christ. We receive the Holy Spirit through Christ. This is something that no human being can give you. I cannot give you the Holy Spirit because he's God and he doesn't depend on me. Isn't that miraculous that I cannot give you the Holy Spirit unless Christ cooperates with me, unless he makes use of me in some way. Okay. At the very least, what I can do is become an occasion for Christ to give you the Holy Spirit. Just like Peter preached the gospel to, um, you know, to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And as he was preaching the gospel, the people believed and the Holy Spirit descended upon them. So what I can do is I can be an occasion for the Holy Spirit to come to you. But Christ sends the Holy Spirit because he is, again, this is something that only God can give us. Only God can give you God. Just like only I can share myself with you. You cannot learn about me. You cannot get me to agree with anything that you say. You cannot be my friend unless I open myself up and I give myself to you. So also, through Christ, God gives us the Holy Spirit. This is something that can only come from God being brought to us through the mediation of Christ. So these are then five ways in which the mediation of Christ brings the things of God to human beings. All right, this is the phrase that I've been using. I'm not so sure that it's the best phrase, but it's it's what comes to mind. Christ mediates to us things that can only come from God, things that no mere human being can bring us. He brings us forgiveness of sins. He brings us healing. He brings us teaching. 
He brings us knowledge of God and he brings us the Holy Spirit. Okay? But at the same time, the mediation of Christ works in the other direction as well. Because Christ, acting on our behalf, brings to God certain things that we were, you know, uh, that we should have brought to him. Okay, so now we've seen what Christ brings us from God. Now let's see what does Christ bring to God on behalf of human beings. The first thing that he brings, interestingly, if you follow the narrative of the gospel, is even the most complicated and even the part of, you know, in part the hardest to understand. If we open up to the gospel according to Mark, the first chapter, starting in verse 4, John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John the Baptist shows up. And he calls people to repent and to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. Okay, he is asking them to turn away from their life of sin and to return to God and to receive from God this gift. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, I'm confident that was not the style at the time. right? He, he did not look like everybody else. He looked like a wild man. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, this is an interesting image. John is preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and Christ comes and is baptized by him. Now, did Christ have sins to repent of? No. We know that Christ had no sins. Okay? Why then is he baptized? He says in the gospel according to Matthew to fulfill all righteousness, but what does that mean? How is he fulfilling righteousness by being baptized when he has no sins? Well, here is my suggestion. This is my idea. I think that it makes a lot of sense, but you can tell me, right, if you agree with me or not. In the Old Testament, we know that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, the Babylonians came, they destroyed the temple, and they took all the people into exile, from Judah into Babylon. Now, those people, among those people in Babylon during the exile, there was a guy named Daniel, right? You remember Daniel from the Old Testament. And he was a very God-fearing and, and righteous person. He had the spirit of the Lord. He was able to interpret dreams for the kings of Babylon. Um, you know, he was involved in very many wonderful and, and impressive um, moments in, in the history of the Jewish people. And here he was in exile. He was a God-fearing person. It was clear that he was a person who feared God. He was not bitter. He did not, um, you know, hate God for allowing the temple to be destroyed. He didn't go through a crisis of faith. He loved God. It was clear that he loved God. And he refused even to partake of the wine and the the foods, you know, of the, of, the, of the Babylonians, because he didn't want it to, to defile himself. He wanted to remain pure to God. Now, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel utters a prayer. Let's open up to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel comes after Ezekiel. In these Bibles, it's page 800, uh, 866. So notice what Daniel does. He is a righteous Jew. He was not a, an idol worshiper. He was a righteous Jew. 
Notice how he prays. We will begin with verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Now let's look at verses 15 through 19. Now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. So notice the way that Daniel prays, even though he probably was not an idol worshiper, he still takes upon himself in a way the sin of the entire people of Jerusalem and he asks God to forgive them. He engages in something like an act of vicarious repentance, right? Personally, I don't think that Daniel was the one to blame for the fall of Jerusalem. I think that he was probably a righteous person who was just surrounded by sinners left and right. But nevertheless, even though he probably was not personally to blame, he nevertheless takes upon himself the sin of these other people. He makes their cause his own. And he prays and he asks that God forgive. I think something like that is going on when Christ is baptized. He does not have sins. He does not have anything to confess. He hasn't done anything wrong. But nevertheless, he makes the cause of sinners his own. And he is baptized for them. He gets baptized for their sins and not for his own. You know, he engages in acts of vicarious repentance. He acts obediently in obedience to God so that God would forgive the disobedience of other people. Not because he himself is disobedient, but because they are disobedient and they need somebody to do it. Now, this sounds strange. We are normally, we're used to thinking of repentance as something that only we do. But I can ask you a question. How perfectly have you repented of your sins? This is something that I think if we pay close attention, we'll find our repentance is always imperfect. If salvation is purely a matter of our own repentance for our sins, I think we're doomed. (laughs) because we cannot repent of our sins perfectly, right? Unless, now and again, there are some saintly people who seem to, you know, have a, a double, a double measure of the Spirit, and they, they seem to rise above the rest of us. But for the average person, repentance is imperfect. If salvation were a matter of our own repentance, we're doomed, right? Because who can repent, who can repent perfectly of their sins? Who never sins again after, they've, after they're baptized and after they confess Christ? Who never sins again after that? We all do or at least very most, the, you know, the, the greater majority of us. That is why even our own repentance cannot be a condition of salvation, strictly speaking. It's true that unless we repent, we will not be saved. But even our repentance has to be uh, grounded in ultimately a sort of a vicarious repentance of Christ. He is baptized with the rest of the sinners in the Jordan by John the Baptist because even their repentance is imperfect. Even their confession is imperfect. Even they don't manage to confess all of their sins. Even they don't manage to understand the true gravity of their sins. Even they don't feel bad enough for their sins. 
So Christ comes into the world and does all those things for them, not because he has sins, but because their repentance is inevitably going to be imperfect. This is my proposal. This is a controversial issue, and I realize that I'm using language that sounds strange and unfamiliar. But I think that it helps us to make sense of an otherwise confusing moment in the gospel history where Christ is baptized among sinners in a baptism of repentance for forgiveness, even though he has no sins himself. So one thing that Christ does for us is he offers perfect repentance in our place. Now, for him, it's not repentance. He is not repenting of his own sins, but he is acting as a repentant person would for our sins, just like Daniel presumably did not worship idols, but nevertheless, he takes upon himself the cause of all the Israel, you know, all the Hebrew people, the Judean peoples um, who did worship idols. And he sort of, he makes their cause his own and he prays on their behalf that God forgive them all. Now, the next thing that Christ brings to God on our behalf is obedience. This is something that he says everywhere. On at least three occasions in the gospel, according to John in chapter four, chapter five, chapter six, Christ says, my, work, my will, my life, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Christ comes into the world in order to do the will of God. This is clear, right? He says in John chapter 4, after he's done talking to the Samaritan woman, his disciples come and give him some food. Here, eat, you're hungry. And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. This is what Christ thinks like. This is not what we think like, but this is what Christ thinks like. My food, the thing that I live off of, the, the thing that gives me sustenance, the thing that keeps me alive, the thing that satisfies my longing is to do the will of my Father who sent me. This is Christ's mentality. This is his idea, to be obedient to the Father, even unto the point of death. And so therefore, in Philippians chapter 2, there is what's called the Christ hymn. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says like this, starting with verse 5, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So we see that Christ is obedient he makes obedience to God his food, the thing that he lives off of. Now, how many of you are so obedient to God that it's the very food that you live off of? Do you think that you could even do that? When I think of what it actually means to be obedient to God to the point that it's my food to obey God, I know that I am so far from that. Maybe in my best moments, I've had, you know, moments of, of absolute consolation and zeal where I said, man, I would give my body to be burned. Right? Maybe I've had moments like that, and they're extremely brief. I can't even remember for sure. But Christ, throughout his entire life, from birth until death, his one goal is to obey the Father. That is the kind of obedience that God wants from us. That's the kind of obedience that the ultimate authority of God deserves. None of us could do that because of sin. So Christ comes in and he does that for us. All right? He is not obedient to God out of some sort of duty to a superior. He is not obedient to God because otherwise God would crush him. He is obedient to God for our sake, because we were disobedient. God must be obeyed, right? Somebody has to make up for sin, but the Son comes into the world to do it for us. It's not as if he needed to be obedient to God in order to have God's good graces. He was with the Father in the beginning, right? He's eternally begotten of the Father. They are in fellowship from all eternity, the Father and the Son. They don't become friends because, God is, because Christ is obedient to him. But for our sake, and so that we might do 
you know, so that somebody might offer on our behalf what we owed God. Christ comes into the world and he is obedient to God to the point of death. He makes obedience to God his food and he lives off of it to the point of giving himself up for the sins of the world. So the second thing that Christ brings to God on our behalf is obedience. The third thing is trust. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 43, when Christ is being crucified, the people who are on the side, who are watching him, they say, he trusted in God, therefore let God save him. How many of you trust in God so perfectly that you never complain when the situation goes badly, you never despair of the future, you never, you know, question and, and ask yourself, does God really love me? How many of you trust in God so perfectly that you would allow yourself to be crucified and have no doubt whatsoever about his goodness towards you? Isn't it obvious that the whole message of the Old Testament is that we should trust in God? Isn't that what Adam and Eve failed to do when God told them, don't eat of this fruit? But the serpent comes along and says, no, God is just, he, he's trying to prevent you from becoming better than you are. He, want, he wants to prevent you from becoming like him. The seed of mistrust, the seed of distrust in God was planted then. And instead of trusting in God, they trusted in the serpent and it led to disaster. Abraham trusted in God. God told him a ridiculous promise. You at 100 years old and your wife at 99 years old are going to have a child. Imagine being married. Okay, probably, let's say he got married at 20 years old. From 20 until 100, that's 80 years. All right, some people despair of having children after just a little while if, if it doesn't work. Imagine being married for 80 years and you never had a child and God shows up to you and he says, you're going to have a child now. And your wife, you know, uh, Sarah, who was older than everybody else here, she's going to have the baby. For very many people, that would come off as a sick joke. That would come off as insulting. How can you tell me now after 80 years I'm going to have a child? But Abraham is not like that. He trusts in God. Does he trust in God perfectly? Aren't there occasions when Abraham, for example, lies about who Sarah is so that he doesn't get in trouble with people? Isn't that a way of, you know, when you lie in order to save yourself from trouble, isn't that a way of lacking trust in God? Moses, for example, trusted in God and he performed all kinds of miracles, but didn't he resist a lot at the first, at, at the beginning, when, when God calls him? And then later, when God tells him to speak to the rock so that water comes out of it, he hits it with his staff. And because of that, he is excluded from the promised land. Even Moses' trust in God was imperfect. There is no Old Testament figure whose trust, is God, and trust, whose trust in God is perfect. There is no New Testament figure whose trust in God is perfect. Even Paul says that the apostles despair of life. Right? The apostles have moments when people are condemning them to death and hitting them with stones and throwing them off cliffs and their, you know, their ships are uh, going under and they're you know, um, castaways on deserted islands. Even the apostles have moments where they despair. Christ's trust in God is perfect. He does not have a moment where he no longer trusts in God. He offers to God perfect trust, which is all God wanted from a human being in the beginning. All that God wants from us is to trust in him. So Christ comes and he trusts and he shows us what it means to have perfect trust in God. And he trusts in our behalf. And then finally, he offers intercession. First John says, let's read it. First John chapter 2. First John chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 
Christ intercedes for us. He's an advocate for us. All right, this is what's so fascinating about it. Christ did not die for your sins 2,000 years ago and then left the rest up to you. Even now, he is interested in advocating your case before God because it's as if his entire life, his entire personality, his entire identity of himself is to be your savior. That's what Christ wants, to save you. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that Christ intercedes for us now at the right hand of the Father. Christ not only is obedient on our behalf, not only does he repent on our behalf, but he also does something that all the greatest figures in the Old Testament did. They interceded on behalf of sinners. This is what Abraham does when God tells him that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. This is what Moses does when the Hebrews worship the golden calf and he goes back up on the mountain and he says, forgive them this sin, but even if you don't, wipe my name out of your book. Right? Effectively, Moses offers himself to be punished by God rather than them. And of course, God doesn't allow it. Daniel, once more, prays on behalf of a bunch of Israelite miserable Judean sinners who simply would not listen to the prophets of God. For hundreds of years, God sent them prophet after prophet after prophet, told them to stop worshiping devils, to stop doing all this, and just to obey God, who freed you out of slavery in Egypt. They refused. And these miserable folks are taken into exile in Babylon. And Daniel there, who is righteous, prays for them. Now, I don't know about you, I have the tendency sometimes that when a person is acting a fool and they finally get what's coming to them, I think, you know what? Good. He deserved it. And I don't feel bad for him. But Daniel is not like that. And neither is Moses like that. And neither is Abraham like that. And neither is Christ like that. Thank God that he's not like that. Because otherwise, once more, we would be doomed. He prays for sinners. He intercedes for us. And even you now who have been Christians for a long time and every day you sin again and every day you say, my Lord, I'm sorry, I repent. And it seems like your repentance is extremely unimpressive. And yet Christ does not give up on you. He intercedes for you now. He prays for you now because he loves you. And because that's what it is to be righteous. That's what it is to have the mind of God, is to pray on behalf of sinners, even if they sin again and again and again, out of love for them. So we saw that Christ brings to human beings the things that come from God. Healing, forgiveness of sins, teaching, knowledge of God, the Holy Spirit. So also we see how Christ brings to human being or brings to God things that human beings owe him. For example, repentance, not for his own sins, but on, you know, vicariously for us. Obedience, trust, faith in another, in another way of speaking, and intercession, praying on our behalf. So we see that Christ mediates this relationship between God and human beings. And what he seeks in every instance is the salvation of the human being. Everything that is lacking for human beings' salvation, he wants to provide it. And everything that is missing, everything that human beings owe God, but they don't manage to bring to him because of their sin, he brings it for them. And all that Christ wants is to stand in between God the Father and human beings and to bring salvation. That's his goal. That's his purpose. Now, I want to finish here by just considering very briefly, who does Christ seek to save? Who is he working for? All right, what, what, is, what is the scope or the extent of his salvific work? And I think it's critically important to say that Christ's work is not only for some number of people, but for every people, for every person, for all people together. And so let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Somebody read for me, uh, please, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's read from verses 14 to the end of the chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 to 21. 
And we will see how Paul understands the work of salvation as God is trying to accomplish it. So look at this wonderful passage, and this I think this passage very you know succinctly encapsulates everything that encapsulates everything that I was saying. Christ comes and brings us something that only God can give us, and he bring, he offers on behalf of God what we were missing, what we were what we owed him. He says, "God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting men's sins against them." All right. So God basically said, "I know that you owe me all these things. I'm not going to count that against you." Christ is going to offer it on your behalf. He says, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. This is an interesting turn of phrase. It's, it's, it's mysterious almost. What does it mean that Christ was made to be sin, even though he knew no sin? There are differences of interpretation here. Theologians don't all agree with each other. But the idea here is that in some way there's a reference to the cross. Christ, Christ on the cross suffers all those things that were due to us as sinners. He takes upon himself in some way that miserable end, which is the appropriate end of every sinner, precisely so that it doesn't have to fall on us. And Paul says clearly, God is not holding your sins against you. Christ has atoned for your sins. Therefore, be reconciled to God. So there are two aspects here. There is the fact that Christ does something for us, right? He makes atonement for our sins. And then there is the invitation to a life of fellowship and friendship with God through Christ. So this is the, the nature of Christ's work. And this is something that is implicit in everything that I've said before. Because God wants to be in friendship with us, he wants to enjoy a life together with us, he teaches us about who he is, he helps us to know how to think about him, he heals us when he's sick, he offers us forgiveness of sin so that we don't try to run away from him like Adam and Eve did. Um, he gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can feel his presence and so that in times, of, uh, in times of trouble we know that God is with us, he reminds us of these things. What God wants is to come and to live very closely together with the human being. He wants every human being to be in a close friendship with him. Now, there were certain barriers to this friendship. Human beings were in debt to God. They owed him trust. They owed him obedience. They owed him righteousness. They owed him all these things. They did not do any of that. Christ comes in and does all of that for us. Imagine all of your debt, everything you owe the bank, everything you owe other people. Someone comes in and pays all your debts off. That's what Christ does. He comes and he pays off every single debt that we have so that, as Paul says, God no longer holds it against us. All that is left now is the invitation for us to come and to join him at the table, for example, when we partake of the Lord's Supper. 
or to join him every moment when we pray throughout our day or as we live our lives in the world. All that is left is for us to enjoy this gift of a life with God that Christ has made possible for us. Amen.